The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Hi, Tom. Thanks, you. Doing well, Father. Yep. Great to be here. Good to see you. Yep. Father, we have all kinds of great, fun emails tonight, uh, if you're up for it. So, uh, the First one we've had for quite some time, and so I wanted to try and get a response to this. Um, it's from a viewer who wrote in and asked, Father, if you would be able to dedicate uh, a portion of our program to the Salem Witch Trials of the 1690s. Uh, this viewer says, I learned about it in college, and I would like to know what Father Jenkins and the Catholic Church has said about it. I read in my text by express, this is a quote, by express orders of the Pope, issued in 1468, there were no limits upon the amount or degree of torture that could be applied. End quote. Is this true, Father Jenkins? What exactly happened at the Salem Witch Trials, and what was the Church's stance on it? Well, the Salem Witch Trials uh, occurred in this country, Salem, Massachusetts. It's called, I think, Danvers now. Um... Uh, from 1692 to 1693. Father, can I ask you to put your microphone on before you begin? <laughs> Might need that. You're going to ask? <laughs> Might help a little bit. <laughs> right. Uh, the Salem Witch Trials took place uh, from 1692, I think it was uh, February of 1692, to May of 1693 mm -hmm. in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, in and around Salem, Massachusetts, actually. And it started when a, a couple of girls um, who had some disabilities began acting strangely. Uh, we might say, strangely, to hear their behavior described to us today might seem like uh, uh, not ex terribly extraordinary behavior for children, uh, especially those with disabilities. But in any case, um, the Puritans they were indeed Puritans, right, uh, reacted to this in such a way that they ascribed it to the power of the devil and uh, thought that it was a result of witchcraft. The children were bewitched. There were witches among them. There were three women accused. Um, I think one of, the, one of them was a young girl about 12 years old, in fact, uh, one of the three ladies. <clears throat> and uh, that sparked... Um, a um, an investigation. I, I won't call it an inquisition because that gives rise. That kind of associates it with the church's inquisition. There was, it was something totally different from that um, among the Puritans of the area to start investigating people and making accusations, and uh, then uh, trying to determine whether or not uh, people were practicing witchcraft. And it involved not only women but men too. I think by the time all was said and done, there were 19 hangings that took place in and around Salem, Massachusetts. 
And uh, as I something about one man himself was being pressed to death. That is, uh, you know, put under a, a board or a door, and the door loaded with rocks until you know he just couldn't sustain life. He was crushed to death. A very cruel thing. You know, the, the stories about the Salem witch trials have to do with uh, tying a witch to a chair and then throwing it in the in the water and saying uh, that if she if she sank to the bottom and drowned, she was not a witch. If she rose to the top, floated to the top and saved her life, then she was a witch and then they would kill her. Um, I don't know. Uh, th- those are legends, you know, and I don't, don't know what substantiation there is for that. But it's pretty clear that there were about 19 people hung. Uh, one man uh, pressed to death. Five others died in, during imprisonment, I understand. So a total of maybe 25 people directly killed by their ill treatment. Um, what does the church teach about that? The church would say that it was a mor- murder to put these people to death. Uh, I know the church itself has been accused by the black legend um, uh, actually circulated by the Protestants. Uh, at least uh, not so much the Roman Inquisition, but the Spanish Inquisition was accused of burning witches and so on. Um, but I, lately, when I say lately, in the last 20 years or so, access to the archives of the Inquisition in Spain has shown that this is greatly overstated. And furthermore, uh, that the Inquisition in Spain uh, was actually very disorganized and uh, it it was not the lethal, monstrous exercise uh, of torture that the Protestants have depicted it to be. Uh, Henry Common, K-A-M-E-N, has written extensively on the subject, a very credible scholar, and his work uh, has ba- basically shown that it's a myth of the Spanish. In fact, I think, uh, what was it, the History Channel uh, actually produced a program uh, narrated by uh, Mudd, uh, Roger Mudd. It was a very good name in, in, in commentary, in news commentary, um, called the, the Myth of the Spanish Inquisition. The Myth of the Spanish Inquisition. Very interesting um, episode, which is very hard to come by now, because after being issued and gaining some circulation, it was banned. And uh, now when you, when you contact the source, they tell you, well, that's not even on the list anymore. And so they've annihilated it. And it's easy to see why, because it would exonerate the Catholic Church of false accusations brought by Protestant enemies trying to um, dishonor the Church and discredit the Church, you know. But uh, the historians who actually look into the Spanish, not only the Spanish, but the Roman Inquisition, actually point out that it was a a step forward in jurisprudence. For example, uh, the rules of the Inquisition uh, greatly limited torture, contrary to that so-called, that that quote from the textbook that our our inquirer uh, brought up there. The Spanish Inquisition and the Roman Inquisition actually limited the amount of torture that could be used, uh, not only in terms of uh, severity, but in terms of duration, to a matter of minutes. Um, And uh, nowadays, we would say any torture is, you know, unacceptable. But, I mean, we see the history, we see our own history. We see torture being used to try to uncover uh, terrorism and so on. 
And uh, we see abortion, uh, saline abortion. We see all kinds of terrible things that are being done to even babies in the womb, you know. So we, we're not one to point the finger at others in the past. Um, so, but uh, it was considered to be a, uh, actually a work of progress in jurisprudence that the Inquisition limited the amount of torture that could be applied and also even said that uh, when, when people brought accusations, they had to be interrogated about a certain animosity they had in bringing the accusation because if they had a grudge against the person they were accusing, their word would not be taken seriously. In fact, when the, when the accused was brought in and questioned, he would be asked to provide a list of all of those he thought might have a grudge against him. He wouldn't be told who his accusers were, necessarily, right off the bat anyway, but he would be told to give a list of those uh, he suspected might have accused him to see if they had some personal enmity toward him. And if the accusers appeared on that list of someone who you know, was an enemy, they would dismiss that. They would not take that testimony seriously. So there were things that were introduced during the Inquisition that actually were more just, actually led to a more just system of uh, judgment. It wasn't um, the monstrous escapade and cruelty that the Protestants had painted it out to be. Uh, I'd recommend uh, to anybody who is interested in the subject that they get a copy, if they can, of the myth of the Spanish Inquisition narrated by Roger Mudd. It was a, the History Channel, or um, it was associated with it. It's a British. It was a British uh, history outlet. <laughs> and uh, also reading the books by Henry Kamen, K-A-M-E-N. There are others, too, by the way, who've come out and written about that now that they have access to the, to the archives of the Spanish Inquisition. And they realize um, that there's a, an enormous difference between the actual history of the Inquisition and the myth that was created by the church's enemies. It's almost as though, um, you know, the, the, the church's practice of getting a list of the enemies and dismissing charges if they were brought by enemies was violated in the very process of the Protestants who had a grudge and who just whole cloth manufactured a false history to accuse the church falsely of this. And of course, you know, when you realize that they're motivated by a, uh, a grudge, an animus against the church, well, then that should make you think the same way, that this is not to be taken seriously and accepted uh, carte blanche. It has to be examined to see if there's any truth to it. Well, those who have actually investigated it found out there's very little truth to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, you gave us some kind of uh, a statement that was quoted from a textbook. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Notice, it's attributed to a pope in 1648. 1468. And 14, 1468, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, they tell you what the pope allegedly said. They give no quote, they give no citation of any document. They just state it as a fact, well, this is what the pope said. You know, limitless torture, right? If, if this... If this is a textbook, if this was supposed to be a scholarly work, okay, for college students, you think the least they could do is provide some sort of kind of documentation, because that's what you're encouraging, you know, in, in, in college students to find out the truth, to investigate. So, 
there's nothing there. Now, that might be the, the author of the email who just didn't include that. I don't know. But he was somehow able to include, in quotes, right, what was said in the text. So you'd think that there'd be some reference to an actual document by an actual pope in 1468, which one could investigate. But this is a typical behavior. I'm not saying this in the part of the writer of the email, but typical behavior of the enemies of the church in producing these textbooks for students in secondary schools and in colleges, just to throw this out there so it's a fact and expect it to be uncritically accepted. And often, all too often it is. Mm-hmm. Now, if our, if our uh, college student had raised his hand, if he was allowed to, and said, well, Professor Schnickelfritz, this is very interesting what I'm reading here, because I'm a Catholic, of course, and I would be very concerned about that. And, of course, this is academia. I mean, we're interested in tooth, truth, right? So I would ask you to please, please find the source for that. Please provide for me the source of that information, just so I can, I can go and research it myself and find out exactly the background story on this, of course. And uh, what do you think the professor would do? I don't know. If the professor was an honest man or woman, uh, he or she would say, you know, this is a serious accusation. We'd better back that up and find out what's exactly behind this. It should be easy to find out, shouldn't it? Now, maybe there was a a source given in the book that didn't make it this far. Uh, But anybody who had uh, an ounce of academic and intellectual integrity would say, well, before I'm critically believing this, I'd better go check it out and see if it's true. But, Father, even if that statement was true, it in no way <laughs> applies to the Salem witch trials. This, um, right, and, but they're trying to tie that. That's interesting, Tom, you're right. They're the, trying to tie the two together. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, he even says the, the 1468, well, okay, that was during the time of the Inquisition. Well, this is centuries later, and there was never, this was under the, the time of an Inquisition, there was never an American Inquisition that was taking place. Well, were the Puritans following the, word, the, Pope words, the Pope's words of 1468? I, yeah. I, I wonder why they would, they would make the connection yeah. in the classroom, in the textbook, in the mind of the student. Right? Yeah. That's very important that you pointed yeah. that out. Okay. Um, so anyway, I'd say, uh, but you can pretty well, I believe, find out the truth of the matter in uh, the research of Henry Common and get a good start there. Yeah. In the meantime, I would ask our writer to provide, uh, if he can, the actual source of that quote in the textbook and uh, to let us know if the textbook itself provides any, any um, uh, you know, source for the, for the quote in a, in a papal document. Okay, yep. We can do that. Well, another question from the same viewer, Father, if we could. He uh, wants to know what Father Jenkins says about dinosaurs, the Ice Age, and how old the Earth is. Um, all of those? <laughs> In 25 words or less, yes, I guess. Uh, well, what about dinosaurs? Dinosaurs. Uh, I like them. I don't like them. I, I'm glad they're gone. Are they gone? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, if the question, I mean, we're trying to interpret what the question really is here. Uh, did dinosaurs exist? Uh, I think there's evidence that they did, right? I would think if they did, it has something to do with nature kind of run amok after the, uh, you know, with the fall of mankind. I happen to believe that uh, 
because I think there's ample evidence that the human race existed at the same time as dinosaurs. I mean, they, they actually have uh, human footprints within the footprints of the dinosaurs, you know, uh, that have been preserved in the fossil record, right? And, uh, and uh, so on. So um, it's kind of hard for them to, to deny the fact that there was coexistence there. Um, but um, in any case, they say the dinosaurs were wiped out by uh, some kind of uh, uh, meteor strike, mm -hmm. right? And uh, yes, I, I suppose it could be. I mean, there's, there's the record, the geological record that would argue about that too. But uh, in any case, I must say, I'm not an expert on the subject, needless to say. I just have my own thoughts on it. And basically, that sums up my thoughts about it. Uh, with regard to, um, what, what else was there? No. <laughs> the Ice Age and the Age the, of the Earth. The Ice Age and the Age of the Earth. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, there are those who insist that the Bible tells us that the Earth is some 6,000-something years old. I don't read the texts of uh, Genesis as they say, as a geology book, right? I think it's interesting to do a timeline from Adam of the lives of the patriarchs, uh, uh, including Noah and so on, and uh, they give the, the ages of the various patriarchs. Uh, and to do a timeline of that is very interesting because it it actually brings, I think, Lamech up to just about the time when the flood happened, as though he might have perished in the flood with the rest of the human race. Um, the idea, you know, giving the list of all of these, even Methuselah, you know, you, you take the, the age of Methuselah and you do a timeline of the various patriarchs, and you see that, that they're coming up very, very close to the time when the flood happened in the, in the, in the life of Noah. And the only conclusion you're left to when you do that timeline is that there were offspring of Methuselah, Lamech, and other, other uh, patriarchs who would have been alive, their families who would have all perished in the flood. Nothing about that is mentioned in sacred scripture, that their offspring perished in the flood. Of these patriarchs, which is, I think, kind of interesting and rather significant. Uh, what significance this has, I don't know. It doesn't in any way take away from the veracity uh, of the Bible at all. It doesn't take anything away from sacred scripture. What, what it does uh, reflect upon is our interpretation of it. Okay, that's something entirely different. But, um, you know, it, it, is, it is a fact that the book of Genesis begins at the be in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And it talks about the first day, the second day, and the third day. And I think it's the third day that God created the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, the sun and the moon. But even before it speaks of the sun and the moon being created, it was already speaking of days. And so clearly, before the sun and the moon were created, we, we couldn't be speaking about days as a solar day or a lunar day or anything of the kind. We couldn't be speaking of a day, a 24-hour day, as the earth revolves on its, revolves on its axis <coughs> with the sun uh, coming around 
you know, in 24-hour uh, time spans. So uh, clearly, um, the reference to the day, the first day, uh, uh, the evening uh, of the first day, and the morning of the second day, and so on, um, at least in that regard, we know we're not talking about 24-hour days, like a solar day here on Earth. Um, so I think we have to be very careful. Um, the fathers of the church gave us very good rules for interpreting the sacred scripture. St. Augustine notably speak very powerfully, very beautifully, very clearly about the interpretation of sacred scripture and what was important in it. And I think uh, it was actually a Protestant divine who started calculating the age of the earth from, uh, no doubt, the King James Version of the Bible and came up with 6,000-something years, okay? And to this day, there are the young earthers, okay, who uh, want to interpret the age of the earth from the, um, from, well, not maybe necessarily the King James Version, but <laughs> some, uh, some other version, a translation. Um, I don't know that God himself really was uh, wanting us necessarily to, to do that. There's, that seems like an exercise in their own personal uh, curiosity to me. Um, the essential thing, of course, is that God created, and the account of his creation is accurate. Right? Our explanation and interpretation of it, though, is subject to error. This is why God gave us the church, the Catholic church, coming from the apostles, with the authority to interpret the sacred scriptures authoritatively, not just some individual Protestant divine, even if he has some, either a PhD or an STD or a, or a DD after his name, right? Uh, Doctor of Divinity. It doesn't give him any authority to, uh, to interpret the scriptures authoritatively, right? Reliably. Um, it is the voice of the Catholic Church throughout the ages, and the Church has spoken very uh, beautifully on the very subject and, um, and basically what, what the church has said all this time, as I, as I understand it, people come back and correct me if they see I write about this, but uh, is that the church has never tried to calculate the age of the earth from the book of Genesis. The Catholic Church. I don't know. I'm not talking about since Vatican II. I'm talking about before that. I don't see the Catholic Church ever trying to... In, calculate the age of the earth um, or the, from the creation of man. I don't see the earth trying to calculate the age of even mankind uh, from the book of Genesis. So, um, you know, if others can do more research and come up with an actual uh, authoritative statement by the church about that, I'd be very interested in hearing it, okay. reading it. Great. Uh, then, Father, if we could move on, we had a viewer ask if you could recommend uh, any good sources on the early persecutions of the church. He says that history is being rewritten in this regard, and I'd like a good source to refer people to, and a good source for myself as well. The well, there's a very good devotional book, uh, The Markers of the Colosseum, very beautiful, as I say, devotional book. There are other books, too. In fact, I should have brought that if I thought of it. Uh, 
uh, on that subject, uh, there's a, a very interesting book which we can actually list on the What Catholics Believe website. In fact, let's remember next time we'll have it front and center here <laughs> yes, and right. on camera, okay? okay. And it's, a, it's an old book. I don't know if it's been reprinted, but there are copies available still. They give very, very interesting history of the early persecutions of the church in the Roman Empire. Um, I, I know it, it, uh, it's a book that holds a particular interest for me because it, it in includes information you don't find in, in a lot of histories. Um, so I'll have to uh, remember to bring that with you. I, I have to try to, uh, rem I don't recall the title of it exactly right now, as we're speaking. But um, I'll, I'll provide you with a copy of that. You can answer that email by sending it to the individual. And uh, let's remember to put it front and center next program. Sounds good. Uh, perhaps I can even cite some uh, examples in the book why I find it to be a valuable source of information about the early persecution of the church. Um, you know, virtually any old, when I say old, I mean pre-Vatican II church history, well, you have to be careful there because the modernists were already working there. And one of the places they were working was in uh, historical criticism, trying to debunk everything. You know, um, we we ran into this problem with our when we took our students to Rome, and they'd be given guided tours of the Colosseum, and the the tour guides would tell the students, "No Christians died here. That's a myth." <laughs> just out, just outright, they'd tell them that, and uh, they had no no evidence to show that all of the evidence provided by the histor Catholic historians over the centuries, and even Protestant and atheist historians over the centuries, they had no evidence to debunk their evidence. You know, they couldn't say, say well, this is why so-and-so wrote that and they got it wrong. They just dismissed everything. And we're supposed to accept it on their personal authority <laughs> that, no, no, it's all not true. Uh, forget that. Christians never died here. But you would ask them, and we did ask them. Well, <clears throat> there was a certain entrance to the Colosseum through which the condemned criminals would enter, right? Oh, yes, yes. They were criminals, right? They had to come in through that entrance into the Colosseum and take their place to be put to death and say, well, was it criminal to be a Christian? Oh, yeah, they were criminals. So, in other words, you're just immediately assuming that none of those who were condemned to death because they were criminals were condemned to death for being criminals for being Christian. Well, no, no, we have no evidence of that. We know, all we know is that they were criminals. So they're just making suppositions. This is not scholarship. This isn't even intellectual honesty. Uh, and the whole purpose, as with the account of the Inquisition, is to discredit the Catholic Church. You know? They have to be intellectual contortionists in order to do that, but they're not ashamed to do it. They're not embarrassed to do it. Um, the fact is, though, uh, there are many uh, excellent histories of the church. I think uh, well, a history by Daras, D-A-R-R-A-S. It's an old history. It comes in four volumes, generally. I've seen it in four volumes. But it, it has very excellent um, account of the early persecution of the church. Another by Alice, A-L-L-I-E-S, I think. It doesn't look like Al Allies, I think his name is, looks like. 
And he also is a convert to the faith, I believe. And he wrote a very interesting history of the church uh, going back to the earliest centuries. And uh, so that there are old histories that give a very a reliable but also even soul-stirring account of the persecutions of the Christians and their heroic witness of their faith to, in Christ. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we can even compile a list. Yeah, sounds good. Moore Thompson, M-O-U-R-E-T dash Thompson is another history which is very credible, okay? Um, perhaps we'll just pile them all up next time. Next mm -hmm. show, okay. Okay. All right. Uh, well, Father, if we could return to the uh, kind of college apologetic theme. We had something else that we wanted to talk about on the show that's um, come up recently. I know you've been asked about this, and it's the uh, Epicurean Paradox. Um, we have a, a uh, great diagram here that... Um, Perhaps we could uh, just work through some of this. I know we wanted to get through it, but uh, yeah. let me just get your your thoughts on some of this, Father. Uh, this Epicurean paradox. He, um, this diagram that we have, it, it begins with the uh, with the supposition that evil exists. It says, and so it asks the the question: Can God prevent evil? Um, <clears throat> so this is a an attack on the what the Catholic idea of God is that what they're trying to sort of follow some reasoning process to show why our belief in God is false? Yes. And in terms of good and evil. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they ask the question, can God prevent evil? And they say, uh, if the answer to that is no, then God is not all-powerful. Okay. Can that be correct, Father? If God could not prevent evil if he wanted to, if he mm -hmm. could not do it, mm -hmm. well, by definition, if it, they say God could not prevent evil, if we agree with that, then, then he would not be all-powerful. Okay. But the point is, God can prevent evil. Okay, so we agree with that one. Then uh, if we answer that, the next uh, sequence is this. Does God know about all of the evil? Does God know about? All of the evil. And the answer the is yes, he's omniscient. He certainly knows okay. evil. Then the next. But, you know, again, according to the Catholic understanding, St. Thomas spoke of it, St. Augustine spoke of it, uh, evil is an abscess. It's the absence of a good, right? So it's the absence of something good and positive that should be present. Right. So, but is God aware of it? He certainly is. Yes. Okay. Then does God want to prevent evil? Does God want to prevent evil? Mm -hmm. Yes. Does he want to prevent evil in itself? Yes, he does. Mm -hmm. Then why is there evil? There is evil because God permits it. The question is, why would God permit it, right? Yes. Do they ask that question? Uh, to the, the question, uh, then why is there evil? They have uh, several different, uh, different solutions that they pose here. The one is uh, to test us. Uh, the other one is Satan. And the other one is that it is necessary for the universe to exist. So those are the three possibilities that they have here. Oh, okay. And, and what do they make of that? Do they well, not accept any of those as good answers? No. <laughs> oh, okay. They say uh, if the answer to uh, the question, why is there evil? If the answer to that is to test us, then they say, well, if God is all-knowing, he would know what we would do if we were tested. Therefore, there is no need to test us. Okay. Um, if we uh, answer that there is evil in the world because of Satan, then we say, they say, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God could and would destroy Satan. That's what they say. That's what they say. Okay. <laughs> So spoke Epicurus, yes, 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 supposedly. Yes. 
And uh, the final reason that they have here, it is necessary for the universe, the evil is necessary for the universe to exist. They say, well, could God have created a universe without these? And if you answer yes, they say, why didn't he? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they're ending with a question anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they're just going through this whole series and it's still ending with questions. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't have the answers to those, but they think that the answers are trapping us, right? Yes. So you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of what we read in the Gospels about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and and recently the Herodians confronting our Lord to ask him questions. And uh, finally he asked them a question they couldn't answer, and then they decided no more of that. Because he embarrassed them all. But, I mean, this is typical of worldly thinking, you know? And and it it overlooks the fundamental teaching of of the Catholic Church. Actually, it ignores the fundamental teaching of the Catholic Church. That not only is God powerful, he's all powerful, <clears throat> he has the power to produce greater good out of evil. He permits evil, he tolerates evil because his power is such he can actually use it to affect greater good. And that is why he tolerates it. That is why he, well, first of all, he, creates, he created Lucifer, who became Satan, not Satan. But he's not Saint and but Satan. <laughs> and he uh, and God having created him and brought him into existence doesn't annihilate him, okay? Because his existence in itself is good, right? Existence is, is a positive thing in itself. It's just that Satan has chosen evil and there is lacking in him perfections that he should have as an angel. And in, in this case, actually, uh, as an angel who is called to heaven and uh the beatific vision of God in heaven, right? He chose out of pride to defy God, but God does not destroy the good that he has made, you know? But evil itself is a nothing. It's an abscess. It's an absence of good that should be present. And so uh, God doesn't have to destroy evil in the sense that evil is not something, is not a something. It's really actually a nothing. We don't talk about a blind stone, We may say someone is as blind as a stone, right? We consider blindness to be evil. But blindness is not an evil in a stone. It's an evil in a human being who are, you know, called to see by God. It's something we try to remedy. We try to give people the the ability and the power to see, and we consider the lack of the ability to see as a physical evil. Something is missing. A power is missing that should be there by nature. And so it is with a moral evil. When people are dishonest, when people are malicious, there is something lacking in them that really should be. A perfection of the soul, of virtue, should be present there, and it's not. It's like an abscess in creation. The question is, why would God permit such abscesses? Why would God permit this? Well, we say that God is, and we say it rightly, that God is infinite perfection. And there can be no uh, lack in him. There's no evil in him because there is no abscess or uh, anything lacking to him in terms of perfection and goodness, in being, in act, as they say. Um, but he possesses all, in, in, is all to an infinite, infinite degree, if you can call it degree, But we are creatures, and God made us, and he didn't make us defective. But because we're creatures, we are defectible. 
Any created nature is defectible. It's not absolute perfection. <clears throat> and, um, I mean, we, we go through this whole process of thinking like this every day. You buy a new car, and you expect that it is not defected, de defective. And if the windows don't work, right, if the wipers don't work, if the flashers don't work, the turn indicators, it's defective, you take it back, you insist, I bought this new car, everything has to work, it has to work the way it's supposed to be, according to specs, okay? At the same time you buy the car, you know it is defectible, you know things are going to fail on it. I mean, it's our own work, handiwork, putting this together. Sometimes we even create it so that it, the planned obsolescence, so that after a certain amount of time, it's going to give out. But that doesn't mean you bought a defective vehicle. But it's the work of, of, a, of human ingenuity, and so it is defective using human materials here. When God worked, he had divine ingenuity, you might say, and he created materials to create our bodies. The point is, though, that anything short of infinite perfection is going to be defectible. And that is why, in giving us free will, God enabled, gave us the choice, or gave us the ability to use that free will to defy him. That was true in the angels, and it's true in, in us. Um, why would God permit that? Well, they, they are trying to make the case there that God, uh, uh, that, that happened because God is not all-knowing or God is not all-powerful. Those conclusions are completely gratuitous, though, um, and based upon a very, very limited understanding of the divine nature. That God is so powerful that, yes, he can create, he creates uh, beings through the infinite act of his divine will, who are not defective, but they can defect. They are defectible. But the point is that God can take even from their defects <clears throat> the impetus and the, the occasion to produce even greater good. And that's what he does. This is fundamental to our Catholic understanding. It completely, completely obliterates all of these arguments. That when you add that to the, uh, the formula, you come, come up to the ultimate answer to their questions. Is God can even turn evil to the greater good. Part of the problem that people have in understanding all of this is the limits well, that are necessary because of the divine person, the divine nature, the divine power, infinite power. We can only imagine so much. Um, in creating hell, God actually created hell for the fallen angels and for fallen lost souls. Uh, we call the fallen angels devils, and we call the lost souls demons. Okay, There's actually a difference here. But God created hell for them. It says so in Sacred Scripture. <clears throat> they had to go somewhere. There had to be a place for them, okay? And uh, God created this place for them. The, the Lucifer and those angels who followed him in his rebellion, and the souls of men who would follow them in their rebellion against God. And, um, but hell, as bad as it is, is not infinite punishment. Um, Everything about hell is something we can imagine. The only thing 
well, even even the fact that it continues on forever, we can we can imagine that. We can imagine it so that we could even say to ourselves, well, you know, okay, um, I could get away with sins in this world and take punishment in hell for 100,000 years, but it's going to come to an end, <clears throat> and when it's over, it's over, right? I can imagine that. I can even calculate that into a formula, whether it's worth sinning in this world, you know? But the idea of it going on forever and ever and ever, I can actually imagine that enough to realize that's scary. I don't want to do that. So when God created hell, he created something within the reach of our imagination to understand the pain of sense, the fire, the stench, the sound of it all, uh, and the pain of loss. Because we can experience these things in this world, and we do, all of us, right? But heaven, in a sense, is uncreated in the sense that it is a beatific vision of God. I mean, it is created by grace and so on, obviously. That relationship we'll have with God in heaven, the, the lumen gloriae, that is cre created for us. But heaven itself, in the experience, as it were, of God, that union with God by love, uh, God himself being uncreated, okay, that puts heaven completely beyond the range of human imagination. It's almost comical to see how we portray heaven. You know, I mean, when we portray hell, the portrayals are much more credible than when we portray people floating around in, in you know, like uh, saffron robes or whatever they do, holding little harps and uh, flitting around on clouds and so on. Although, I mean, there is, there's some imagery given, right, in, in sacred scripture that gives us that kind of thing, to give us a little tiny sense of that. But even then, St. Paul says that no, and here's St. Paul who experienced, was wrapped up to the third heaven and was given knowledge that it was impossible to express in human words. <clears throat> but St. Paul said that no human eye or human... No human eye has seen, nor human ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what things God has prepared for those who love him. <clears throat> In other words, heaven. It's beyond the power of human imagination. <clears throat> That's why some people find heaven almost scarier than hell, because it's the unknown. You know? That's where it takes faith to trust that God knows that our Lord Jesus Christ know very well what heaven is, right? He's the Son of God. And he came to earth precisely to redeem us, to give us the possibility of having heaven, and was willing to endure all of the torments um, that heaven and hell could throw at him, you know, could inflict upon him, for the sake of enabling Tom Nagley someday to have the joys of heaven. Now that's a pretty solid uh, reason to believe that even though heaven is beyond the power of imagination, it is something so wonderful, it is worth sacrificing for. When we see what Christ sacrificed for us, what the Son of God himself sacrificed for us. <clears throat> so, um, we see even in that. I mean, there is, there is a greater good in one soul being saved than in all the other souls being lost. Because the nature of the reward in heaven is so vastly superior to the punishment of hell. The punishment of hell seems so, so much more horrible to us because it is within the realm of our imagination. 
But uh, in any case, you add to that Epicurean paradox um, the, the factor of the faith that God brings greater good out of every evil, saves more souls because of evil, and, and brings them to a greater joy and perfection in heaven and a greater love, actually using even evil to do it. That is what we might call the great irony, you know, of, uh, of creation. It, it, the irony even is, in a sense, to be found in God's modus operandi, the way God does things, too. So, anyway, um, I hope we can convey that to our questioners. Sure, yeah. And invite them to ask further questions, too, if there are still things unclear. Okay, great. Father, anything else you'd like to add tonight for us? Well, I think you have a few more questions there. What do you think? <laughs> we Is do. there anything else uh, you can put on the table there? I can, Father, sure. Um, we did uh, have a question that I, I wanted to, uh, to get to because we've had it for... I'm going to regret this, probably. <laughs> no, we, we've had this question for uh, for too long, Father, and I, it's a great um, great topic, and I, I wanted to mention this to you, but there's... Uh, this uh, this one Walid Shubat, I believe is his name. He's a uh, Palestinian American uh, author and, and speaker. I understand that he's a convert from Islam to Christianity. Not sure exactly what uh, is meant by that, but he um, apparently Father has been um, has been writing and, and speaking about uh, about Islam and s talking about this idea of how it's. Uh, so many Westerners or Europeans are just very, um, they well, are ready to just totally dismiss Islam and, and, and the, uh, as far as the apocalypse, the end time scenario, and say that Islam has no, no role to play in this. But his point is that uh, Islam has a very significant role to play in the end times, that uh, the Antichrist could perhaps issue forth from these Islamic nations, and that even Islam itself could be the little beast that we read about in the book of the Apocalypse. So have you ever heard any of this, Father, that, uh, in regards to Islam? Well, I have. Little beast? I had. And Walid Shubat. Is that how his name is, his name is pronounced, actually? I believe so. Okay. I know it's uh, W-A-L-E-E-D and then S-H-O-E-O-E, S-H-O-E-B-A-T, right? -E so you say it's pronounced exactly that way. I believe the, the first name is W-A-L-I-D. I-D, okay, well, -E okay. Okay, uh, interesting. Well, um, you say he's a convert from Islam, mm -hmm. which makes it all the more interesting that he's claiming that Islam is going to play a significant role for evil as an instrument of Satan in the book of the Apocalypse, or what I guess he would think of as the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so I would say as a convert, not only has he rejected the, uh, the uh, you know, uh, Islam as true, but he actually sees it as an, a, a great evil. So I'm very happy that he, that he converted from that. But uh, of course that would make him subject to death too, right? Yes, yeah, he So I'm that. sure there's a fatwa yeah. against him. Yes. But in any case, um, <clears throat> I, we should pray for him that he you know, fully converts to true Christianity and traditional Catholicism and finds there the truth. Um, I, I do believe he's right that Islam uh, certainly does play a role, a role, and I do believe that it is mentioned in the Apocalypse, uh, the book of the Apocalypse, as playing a role in the end times. The coming of the Antichrist, uh, God's punishment of mankind for its evils. Um, 
I know Islam tries to um, claim the high ground morally and point out the degeneracy of Christians, but actually, uh, again, we find that to be a, 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 a complete fabrication because um, the degeneracy of Christians is not an indictment of their Christian moral principles. It's not an indictment of their faith. It's an indictment of them that they have failed to be Christians. So uh, if we're going to criticize Christians for not living up to Christianity, then we should applaud them if Christianity is bad. And if Christianity is good, then we should condemn them for not living up to it, right? Which is what they're, we're saying. They're not living up to their Christian morality. But the problem is with Islam, you actually have a great deal of immorality sewn right into it. I mean, it's part of the fabric of it. And often when, when, when they are living up to Islam, then they are really being bad and doing bad things to people and uh, to God, right? In the name of God, they're doing very evil, horrific things to people in the name of Allah, invoking their religion, invoking Islam. So, uh, in any case, I can see why uh, Walid would um, say this, this has to play some kind of role in the overall scheme of things. You know, I, I, whenever one mentions the uh, role of Islam in the account in the book of the Apocalypse, I, I think about the locusts swarming out of the ground, uh, wearing, what, crowns like turbans, and they're bearded, right? And they swarm over the earth, stinging mankind, you know. Uh, the one thing that stops people from thinking of that as being the Islamics, of these, these locusts swar swarming over the ground, out of the ground, uh, and, um, and stinging mankind, is it says that they, would they could not sting them unto death. Okay, and people will say, well, if there's one thing endemic to the jihad, it is killing people. Outright, it's just slaughtering them wholesale, right? But perhaps the meaning of the apocalypse, if we were going to see Islam in this image imagery, is that they they could not succeed in destroying the faith. That they would sting them with the sting of the flesh here on earth, but they were not successful in destroying the faith of the Christian people, and maybe that's why it says. That, well, in, in other terms, that they could inflict the first death of the body, but they could not, they were not successful in inflicting the second death of getting Christians to deny their faith in Christ. And I would say that might be an explanation, an understanding of that imagery from the book of the Apocalypse about these locusts swarming with their heads wrapped, you know, in crowns or whatever. Uh, and, um, Stinging everyone, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I do see that that is a possible interpretation, but I realize that that is my personal interpretation. I don't know any of the fathers of the church who've made that relation, that connection that I have. Maybe they have. I'd like to consult Cornelius Alapide on this very subject, you know, how he, uh, how he would see Islam in the... Book of the Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure he must make some reference there. Um, in any case, um, 
whether Islam constitutes the little beast. Well, it seems to me there was a second beast, right? And the second beast had the lamb's horns, right? As I recall. And the lamb's horns symbolized ecclesiastical authority. So, uh, generally speaking, I think Catholic interpreters mean that is something of the church itself, someone claiming to represent the authority of Christ in the world, but he was actually a beast from, from hell, right? Representing the powers of hell. And using that guise of the lamb's horn um, to disguise himself as a force for good when he was actually a force for evil. Um, so I, I don't know that, uh, you know, what case one could make for understanding the little beast uh, being Islam. Now, Father uh, Kramer, I think, gives a rather extensive treatment of Islam uh, in the uh, in, in being referenced in the Book of the Apocalypse, and some of the disasters it caused. For example, when the the mountain, and I mean, you know, the mountain is often related to Muhammad, right? In his mountain, casts itself into the sea. Father Kramer, I think, references meaning the Mediterranean Sea around which the the, the faith was originally planted and grew, right? Uh, that it turned a third of the sea to blood. And I think he makes some connection that the corsairs of the Islamics, the slave trade of the Islamics, the activity of Islam, all throughout that part of the world, turned a third of the, of the uh, Mediterranean Sea into blood. Right? I think Father Kramer makes this reference in his book, The Book of Destiny. Right? So I, I would have to say that I agree with uh, Walid, um, Shubat, that yes, I believe Islam does factor, definitely, as a force for evil in the book of the Apocalypse, the account given in the book of the Apocalypse. Exactly what there represents Islam and its influence in that, uh, in that account, I, I couldn't tell you for sure, obviously. Um, but I do see reasons for thinking that uh, if he's if he's talking about Islam being the little beast with the horns of the horns not of the ram, but the horns horns of the the lamb, I don't see it. I don't see that that would be the case. Okay, my own personal opinion, yeah. which can change, you know, with evidence. Okay. I'd like to see what evidence he has for it. Yeah. Well, Father, I could keep the question coming all night. <laughs> well, that's that's okay. <laughs> Oh, um, I don't want to, uh, to. Well, listen, I do ask prayers. There's a very dear songs. I mean, there's so many of them. I, I couldn't possibly name name all, but I ask urgent prayers for Tim Kelly, whom I just anointed. Um, he's in ICU, uh, ventilated, and uh, his condition deteriorating. To pray for him and his family. Please pray for, of course, uh, uh, Mike and Livia Lorenzano, to their souls, and their daughter Leah. Uh, who is also ill. Pray for Ray Sisiki. Uh, we have uh, Stephen Sajarto uh, praying for uh, so many of these good souls and others who have brought to my attention, uh, even in the last 24 hours. 
So, uh, continued prayers for Father Greenwell, Father Bomberger, for uh, Father Delalo, who just lost his mother. Well, he didn't lose her. I mean, she, she passed away, but I, I know she's still in the hands of God. And uh, his mother, Jeanette, just passed away. And I understand that Father Delalo was so ill, he, he wasn't even able to attend her funeral. Certainly a heavy cross. So pray for her, dear soul, and pray for Father Delalo, her son, as well. Uh, and uh, I understand that there are other traditional priests around the world who are suffering from illness and persecution by their governments. So um, I just ask you to keep them all in your prayers. Those I've mentioned and so many others that you can't possibly mention now, but God knows who they are and he knows your intentions. If you would even so much as just offer a prayer for those who have appealed to me for prayers to appeal to you, that God knows and he will bless them and uh, strengthen them because of you and your act of charity. And also bless you for it, too. Yeah. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Certainly, Tom. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.